This passage, and I love that he went, is it in the right place? Because this is one of those passages where, you know, all those people went, huh? Because Paul, of course, was highly educated, very learned, and so he speaks in big, big thoughts, big ways. He's also has a deep understanding of both Jewish history and Roman thinking, and he's not writing in English. So by the time we take these big thoughts, these big stories, he's invoking things from Hebrew culture, which we're only marginally aware of. He's bringing up uh, Greek ideas that we're not really not how we think. He's doing it in another language. We translate it. We get to this, and if you're reading this on your own, this is the part you skip over. And you're like, really? He's going to preach this part? Oh, no, we're in trouble. But Hopefully, as we go through it this morning, we can see that there's some real beauty here. There's some real uh, beauty of what Paul is saying here, a profound, profound and simple message. So just to quickly recap, because we're in part two of our Free Spirit series. This is called Followers. And last week, we did uh, Galatians 4, 1 through 11. Today, it was 12, and then we went through uh, chapter 5, verse 1. But last week, we looked at the idea of being a kid-slash-slave, because, again, sometimes the difference isn't very much, and that was the point, or an heir, and the difference between working to try to achieve something and being given it because it's your inheritance. And we talked about, spiritually, are we trying to work to, a, to get a spiritual blessing, or do we receive a spiritual blessing through our inheritance as God adopts us? And another way we put it was, do you do in order to be, or are you be in order to do? In other words, do you do what you do so that you will be a person of God? Or does what you do come out of the fact that you have been declared a child of God? So Paul talked about that last week. He's continuing that because we're still in the same uh, part of the passage, the same part of the letter. But now the reason we're doing this as a separate message is he's going to now use a whole new way to illustrate that. So starting in verse 12, the first thing we need to talk about is he, it's almost like reading, we're reading somebody's letter and he gets very personal for a minute. And we kind of might skip over this, but it's important. Because he talks about, hey, the last, when I was there, when I came and taught you, I was sick. I was physically ill. Now, there's a lot of theories, and we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us for certain. We can ask Paul when we get to heaven. But there's a lot of theory that says that when Paul encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, we know that it was a bright light and all this, that it permanently damaged Paul's eyes. And that for the rest of Paul's life, Paul struggled with his eyesight. Now, we don't know that for certain, but there's a lot of hints in the text that Paul struggled for a long time. He was blind at first. He got his eyesight back, but that his eyes were never the same, that you know, the, the bright light damaged his eyes. He talks about having a thorn in the flesh that he asks God to remove. God says no. Some speculate that it was his eyesight. Here, the hint is, as he talks about that he was with them, and he says, and I wasn't well. I was, I was weak, I was physically weak and sick, and you had to take care of me. And then he makes a statement in verse um, 15. He says, I bear witness, I, I remember that if possible, you would have picked, plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Well, that's a weird thing to say, you know? I mean, I've never had, you know, my children, oh, Dad, you love us so much, it's like you would pluck out your eyes. No, I mean, that's just not a thing, right? Why would Paul say that? I know if you could have, you would have plucked out your eyes. That's a little gory, but if, if what he's meaning, I think if we translated this culturally, we'd say, I know if it was possible, you would have offered me your corneal transplant, all right? You would have given me your eyes, because that's how he was sick. We don't know. It doesn't matter. His point, notice all the way through here, 
he's talking about that he came among them and he was weak. He wasn't impressive. He said, you know, like verse 13, you know that it was because of bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And you had to take care of me. He's coming to them and he says, I want you to be like me, verse 12, be like me as I'm like you. I became like you. He's talking about that they're equals and in his post-Pharisee life, the Pharisees were impressive people. They were the rabbis and the teachers and they walked around. If any of you have seen The, uh, the Chosen, in I think the second episode of the first season after Mary has been delivered from, from her mental, um, for the demons and her problems, and she's walking to the marketplace, and Nicodemus goes to see her, because Nicodemus has heard he'd tried to free her, and he thinks he did it, and so he finds out she's better, he goes to see her, and he's talking to her, and when she realizes he's a Pharisee, she kind of freaks out a little, she like pulls her, you know, oh, I gotta cover my head, and all this stuff, and Nicodemus says, don't worry, I'm not here to enforce Jewish law, because you have this immediate, oh, you're a Pharisee, whoa, whoa, it's like, oh, the cops are here, because that was the Pharisees, they were, they were over you, they were the great men, and, they, they were the, and Paul was a Pharisee. But he says, now, when I came to you, I didn't come. I wasn't impressive. I was sick. And he's emphasizing this, that he's an equal. He's not over them. That, in fact, when he was there, he needed their help. He was physically weak. This is a contrast. And then he says, but these guys that had come in and were giving them demands... He says, they eagerly seek you, verse 17, they eagerly seek you, not commendably, not for good reasons, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. He says, these other leaders, they're coming to you to turn you into their followers. Their motivation is not to help you, it's to control you so that you will be their followers. They want you to follow them. But Paul says, it is good, it's good always to be eagerly sought. It's nice to have someone want you in the right way, in a commendable manner. Not only when I am with you, my children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could just be present with you now and to be gentle with you. Because Paul's having to kind of give them a talking to, they're wrong, and they need correction. But Paul's concerned that he's going to come across as over them. He's concerned that as he has to kind of tell them something they need to hear, that they're not going to understand that he's not coming to them as a Lord over them. And so he says, okay, I've got to tell you some hard things, but remember when I was there, I was weak. Remember when I was there and you had to care for me? And even though right now I have to tell you hard things, I wish I could just be with you so that you could see how gentle I am. And so this whole passage, which is deeply personal, there's not, we're not going to sit there and go, oh, these are words to live by. No, you're just hearing Paul differentiate himself from these other leaders who are coming in, and they said, he, they're trying to get you under control so that you will follow them. And that's not my attitude. I want to help. I want to encourage. I want to just be with you. And for a former Pharisee, this is big. So having established that, then in verse 21 through 31, he goes back to what he's been talking about, which was this idea of, do you get blessings from God and standing with God by being good or because God did it for you? And he draws on Jewish history, two moms, two sons. 
And he goes back to Abraham. And we sometimes, we know, we might know, if you've grown up around this, you might know the story of Abraham and, and Sarah and Hagar. But even then, sometimes we don't know the richness of that story. We just get caught up in the details. But this is a, it's a beautiful story here. And he, he takes the story to use it as a beautiful picture of what God's doing, which is why it happened in the first place. God was using it to teach us about himself. So Abraham and Sarah, God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, I'm go you're going to have a descendant. Your descendants are going to multiply until they're a whole nation, like sand on the seashore. And through you, through your family... I'm going to bless the, all the nations of the world. Wow. So Abraham's like, wow, I have like a, a legacy here, a job. I am the father of this God's plan. One little minor detail. His wife has never been able to have children, and now she really can't have children because she's old. She hadn't been able to have children back when she could have had children. She was not able to. And now it doesn't matter. Because it's too late either way. What are we going to do? God has given us a job. We're going to create this great nation that is the key to his plan. But the old-fashioned way, how are we going to have a kid? Well, they did it the old-fashioned way. Since she can't have a kid, they went with the surrogate route. Now, they don't go, didn't go the surrogate route we did, which was hire a surrogate. Hey, uh, Sarah's like, well, I have this slave girl. She has to do what I tell her to do. So get her pregnant. That's what they do. Because if you need a kid, that's how you do it. That's the natural way. And so he brings this up. He says, so that's, that was two things. And that represents, that's so Hagar, that represents the natural way to do things. That represents human effort. That represents doing things fleshly. But remember, it says Hagar was a slave. Hagar wasn't free. And he says, and that represents Sinai. And that's where we really, by the time he pull, starts pulling in Sinai in Arabia, you're like, oh, what? But you have to understand, when he mentions Sinai, what is he talking about? He's talking about when Moses and the people went to Sinai and God came down on the mountain and there was thunder and lightning and Moses went up and came down with the Ten Commandments. And you have the entire covenant given there. So when he mentions Sinai, he says it's, it's, that's that moment. What is Sinai? The law. What is the law? Here's God wants righteousness, and here's the human way to do righteousness. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt, thou shalt. You want to be righteous, the old-fashioned way. Here's what you do, and here's what you don't do. That's the natural way. He says, but that's slavery. You're under a yoke. You've got to do what you're told. Your slave. It is a picture of human effort to accomplish God's will. What does God want? Righteousness. How are you going to do it? Follow the rules. You need an heir. How are you going to do it? Get the slave girl pregnant. Human effort. A human way to accomplish God's will. That's what Abraham and Sarah did. They didn't mean poor. Abraham's like, I need an heir. Sarah's can't do it. So I have to find a way to make it work. And that's the picture of human effort. God wants me to be righteous. How am I going to be righteous? I've got to try my best. Find a way to make it work. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt. But he says, listen, there's a second way. The other wife, who represents the promise. 
The air didn't come through Hagar. The air came through Sarah. How is that possible? Sarah is incapable of producing an heir. Exactly. But she got pregnant anyway. Why? Because she tried really hard? No, she couldn't even get pregnant when she could have gotten pregnant. That's why God doesn't just say, I'll make her pregnant when she's old. He'll say, I'll make her pregnant when she's old, and she couldn't even get pregnant when she was young. Because God wanted to be crystal clear, this ain't you, this is me. I'm the one going to fulfill my demands, my promises, my work, not yours. Abraham and Sarah said, so what can we do? Oh, we can, we can get you a kid, God. God's like, no, I'll do it. In fact, even though you've done it, no, I'm not going to work through your effort. I'm going to work through mine. And that represents Sarah. And he goes, and that represents Jerusalem. And he says, not even the earthly Jerusalem, the heaven Jerusalem, because what happens in Jerusalem? Jesus. And it's a picture of, instead of them going up to God on Sinai, Jerusalem represents God coming down to us. Instead of you trying to get to God, God trying to get to you. Based on his effort, not yours. So in Sinai, the law came, the, the law came and we went up to God. Here's what I need to do to get to God. And Jerusalem, the cross, God comes down to us. And that's what he's talking about. That's why he invokes all this stuff, which when you first read through it, it's a little confusing. But he said, Hagar is like Sinai. It's the slavery of trying to fulfill God's will through your own effort. Sarah is where God's will is accomplished through God's work because it is impossible for you where God comes down to you through his work, not yours. And so then he says, so be like Isaac. Be like the child of promise who doesn't come through human effort but comes through God's supernatural work and then he's pretty harsh because then in verse 30, he says, you should actually expel the other reproach. He quotes again the Old Testament, cast out the bondwoman and her son for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. In other words, he says, these are not two different viable options. There's only one way that you're going to achieve God's will and God's blessing and it's not through the human effort. You can't make the system work yourself expel it don't even don't even go there which is tough because we still go there right we so make everything depend on our human effort here's what god wants and i gotta make it happen instead he says verse 31 he says no don't be like that be free and then the reason I threw in chapter 5, verse 1, remember the chapter and verse stuff isn't part of the Bible. It was assigned later. It makes it very handy to find stuff. We need it. But chapter 5, verse 1 is part of this. It's a bad place to break. The break should be chapter, verse 2 of chapter 5 starts the next section, and that's where we're going to start next week. But he finishes his thought by saying, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. He says, you've been set free to be free. Don't go back to not being free. Because going back and enslaving yourself to thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt not, that's not where you're supposed to go. So, discussion. Here I come. So the first thing out of this passage is the approach to leaders. 
If you have grown up around church of various kinds, you have been exposed to leaders who seek to make you spiritually need them. Now, I am not attributing motives to them, but let's talk about why do leaders do this and how. Your thoughts? Leaders that make you spiritually need them. Why and how? Because we've encountered this. They may not be bad people, so I'm not, this is not a bash, bash anybody. But how do, how do leaders do this? Why do you think leaders do this? Thoughts? This will be the interactive part. You did so good last week. Don't let me down now. Yeah, a little feather in the cap for the leader. Look how many people I brought to God. Oh, here's my followers. Yeah. So there's an ego dimension to it. What else? Why, do, why and how does this happen? Where spirit, leaders make you need them spiritually. Nate. Hmm. If, yuck. There's a natural tendency to want to control. So, and some people just want to have control, but what would be a, a positive motive for wanting control? Like some people just want control, but some people want control for maybe a good reason. What would be a good reason some people would want control? I'm not saying they're right, but why? Yeah, Allie. Doing good is good, so I want to make sure you do good, right? I, you, if you, you genuinely care for people, if you genuinely care for people, and it's like being a parent. If you're a parent, what? You want your kids to not do bad things, because not just because you're an egomaniac as a parent, but because you care about your kid. So you say, you're not allowed to do that, which works great for parenting. I didn't say effectively, but it, it's appropriate. Which is why he used last week the metaphor of when you start off, the law was for children. But he said, but grow up. So how, how, are, how are some of the ways that this happens? That leaders seek to control you and make you need them spiritually. That's the big thing. Not just control, but make you need them. Because he says they're, they're trying to shut you up so that you need them. What are your thoughts on that? They put themselves in God's place. Well, and, and, and I want to come back to that thought in a minute, but I, won't, I, don't want to, I don't want to have you say something to me do all the talking. They highlight your flaws. This is what you need to work on. Yeah, I thought I heard something over here. They're looking for power. And again, it's that control issue. And, and flaws give me a, a reason to talk to you because you need to work on that. What else? Good stuff. How else has this, has this played out? A leader is supposed to be Christ-like and lead. So a leader needs followers. So anything that helps you be a follower must be good, right? Because what makes me a leader? Having followers. And so then to come back to Jason's comment, and so I'm supposed to be like Christ, but then here's the trick. Christ is the mediator between us and God, right? So if I'm going to be Christ-like, what do I suddenly become? The mediator. And so Bill wants to get to God, so who does he come to? Me. 
Ira, will you pray for me? I'll pray for you, Bill. What am I doing? I am now standing between Bill and God, except I am not a mediator. There's one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm trying to be Christ-like, but now I'm trying to be Christ. And I'm going to tell you whether God approves of you or not. I'm standing now between you and God, and I'm not supposed to be there. All right, good discussion. We'll keep going here. True leaders are equals that call you out of yourself and into Jesus. The goal of a leader is not to say, follow me. Now, Paul did say, follow me as I follow Christ. But as an example, not as a mediator. And that's, what Paul, and that's why it was so important to look at the personal part of this passage, which is kind of weird to read because it's like you're, you're listening to Paul very personally, but he said, guys, remember when I was with you? I wasn't this big, impressive guy. You actually had to take care of me. He is leaning on reminding them that he didn't come in as the Lord, that they actually had to care for him, and his goal is to teach them and help them. They, he does need to correct them, but he's not trying to correct them into himself. He's trying to lead them back to the Lord, not be the intermediary. And that's what the, that is the kind of leaders we want. And he warns them, he goes, these guys, they just want you to be their follower. And I just want to help you. And yet our natural human tendency is to create leaders that we can put ourselves under. And that's why he says, why are you wanting to enslave yourself? And we talked about that last week in the discussion of sometimes it just feels better. It feels safer. And so he sets this idea that we can have sin, law, religion. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt Follow the law, follow the religion. You have the holy guy who kind of blesses you and tells you you're doing okay and, and bestows on the honor. And all right, we've got religion. Or grace, forgiveness, and I'm in a relationship with God. The difference in leadership is the difference between over or with. I was down for an ordination yesterday and I shared with the church because they asked me to do the charge and I shared about the danger of leaders that decide that they're over. It's the big reason why, and I know some of it drives you even a little crazy, but it's why I, I will not let you turn my job, my gifting into a title that elevates me above you and why you can't call me Pastor Ira. Because it's why, why do that? It sets me apart. And people say, I had a lady, we, I did a conference, I talked about this, this lady argued with me through the entire workshop because her whole picture was, but the pastor, he belongs up here. And scripture actually explicitly says, no. He says, your greatest leader should be your servant. He says, the leaders of the Gentiles love to lord it over. It is not that way with you. Because the goal is not to lead as in follow me. It is, I will get you to Jesus, but I am not your intermediary. I am not superior to you. And Paul goes to great lengths to show that he is not over, he's with. He still has to tell them some hard things. He's, he, he's, he is leading, but not by being above them. Coming to God in Jesus is a freedom from the slavery of performing and measuring up. So I want, to, I want to tell a story. You're in Israel, and you, you love God. You know that God 
is there. Yahweh matters to you. And so every week, you get your sacrifice and you go up to the temple. Sometimes you have to wait in line. It's always very busy up there. There's a lot going on. The priests are working. You've got to stand there with your animal, wait for your turn for your sacrifice to be offered. Finally, you go up and it's your turn. The sacrifice, the animal slaughtered, put on the fire, and the smoke goes up to God. You know, this symbolizes that you are getting your sins forgiven and that you're seeking after God and making yourself right with God. And you go home and say, okay, Yahweh, accept my sacrifice oh, because God is important to me and I want to be faithful to him. It was a busy weekend, and you heard there was a lot going on in town. It's now first day of the week, Sunday. First day of the week, and you take your sacrifice, and you go up to the temple, and you walk in, and it's deserted. There's no fire going on the altar, and nobody's around. Well, that's weird. No priest comes out to help you with your animal. Things not even lit on the altar. Well, what am I supposed to do? Well, you walk up to the temple and look in. Am I here? No, but what happened to that big curtain? Because it was that giant curtain that stood at the back of the front of the temple so that you couldn't see into the ark, which represented the, the presence of God. You can't go in there, you'll die. Because you can't get too close to God, it's dangerous. But somebody ripped the curtain. I can see all the way into the ark. I'm not supposed to be able to see in there. And what am I going to do with my sacrifice? And then the guy comes out from the side. He says, what are you doing? I'm here to be right with God. I come every week because God matters to me. He says, I'm sorry, we're closed. I need to offer my sacrifice. He goes, actually, no, you don't. We offered one over the weekend. That is the last one. And it's all done now. You're all paid up. It is finished. And there is now no barrier between you and me. Because I sacrificed myself to put an end to your efforts. And you and I are okay. And you never need to come up here again to try to make us okay. We're done. is finished. And yet so many of us are weakly bringing our sacrifice up to the altar. God, please accept me. God, please be pleased with me. And God says, there's nothing between us anymore. You don't have to make up for anything anymore. It is finished. I have paid it all. I am the last sacrifice you will ever need. So take your animal home and walk with me. So the question we're going to end the service with and then we're going to sing about the altar. Are you free in Christ? Are you still laboring under I need to try to keep God happy? Or do you understand that it's done? That Jesus gave his life so that you could know him. That God so loved the world, you included, that he did everything that needed to be done so you and he could be okay. Doesn't matter how we live, sure. 
but not for the purposes of being right with God. Over the next two weeks, we're going to further work through what Paul's going to explain how we go from here. But if you today are still living a life where you are hoping that you can make God happy with you, that you are hoping that you can live up to him, you are enslaved. And you need to let him set you free. You need to stop putting your trust in your ability because I don't care how hard you work, how good the offering is, you don't have an offering that can do this. So be free. He has set you free. The last thing is, for those of you who are here who say, yes, I'm still working on it, I still slip, but no, I know that my standing with God is based on His work, not mine. My challenge to you is, you got to learn how to share that. For so many of us, when we share this good news, we still share it as, here's what you need to stop doing, here's what you need to start doing, pray this prayer. And if you do these things and don't do those things, then God will be happy with you. And we, that's how we share the gospel. And that's not the gospel. That's not good news. And so we need to be able to go out into this world and tell people, because everyone's trying to be good enough and say, you know what, do you know how much God loves you? They say, well, I, I just don't feel like I'm good enough. You're not. And God didn't come to try to help you do better. He doesn't demand a sacrifice earnestly desires you and he has sacrificed for you what do i need to do trust him trust how much he loves you how much does he love you no one has any greater love than this that he laid down his life for his friends trust that what do i have to do trust him know that he loves you we need to learn how to tell people that that's good news let's pray Lord, we so quickly try to earn your love, try to earn your ongoing favor. We slip from grace into law. We get so worried about thou shalt not and thou shalt that we forget that you love us. We forget that you are daddy and Abba and we can just come to you. We can just walk right into your presence. The curtain has been torn. It is finished. And the barrier has been torn down, not because we've somehow become better. We haven't, but you have finished the work. Your work is sufficient. It is enough. You were worthy because we are not. And may we rest in that peace and that joy that doesn't rely on our goodness, but relies on yours. And I pray that anyone here who's been laboring under the burden of measuring up would be set free and transformed by your sacrificial love that you as God would be willing to die. May we run into your arms because the altar is ready. The sacrifice is finished. All we have to do is come. We thank you, Father, for loving us so deeply. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.